episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, we are going to talk about a question we get all the time, which is, how can I steal your job? They hate us because they ain't us. Yep. Because those are comparable things. <laughs> those are totally comparable. Uh, yeah, we get this question a lot. I mean, at least like, I don't know, a couple of times a year. I get all the DMs about it. Well, you get so many weird DMs that I want no part of. Well, you know, it's not as bad as people think it is, but like the worst part about my DMs is the fact that if I'm not following you, you're in like the requests, but it won't show me the photo you've sent until like I have to like click on it. And so half the time people will send me photos and they're all blurred out and I have to click like this and it's usually an old gun. <laughs> it's usually an old gun. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, so I think that what we should do first is talk about... Uh, what our jobs actually are. Because that's one of the things that people don't realize. I mean, so many people like say they want our jobs, kind of promise you you don't. Right, like a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, like, we love our jobs, but it's not what people think it is. And, you know, and we're obviously working for a nonprofit, you know, it's not anywhere near like what you'd make in like a for-profit industry. Because that's uh, my favorite story was when I was hiring the assistant curator position, I uh, got NSSF to let me list the position, National Shooting Sports Foundation to list the position on their job site. And we had a couple of like industry type people interested. And the second we told them the salary, they were like, "Never mind." Yeah, apparently that's not where I came from. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> so, so Danny, what do we do? Oh man, I don't even know anymore. Um, what do we do? We I do got you on like a, you're really sad today. Yeah, this is a yeah, great day to record like how to get into the museum because I just, my health insurance premiums just went through the roof. Because he got married. Um, but no, uh, a typical day, like it's, you know, there's no real typical day, but it's a lot of people think that it's you are a curatorial staff at a major gun collection. Like you're just out there like watching forgotten weapons videos and then going in the back and handling the cool guns. And, um, there's a little bit of that, like, well, and you have a lot more of it than I do. Right. And I, and I end up doing probably most of the hands on time with the firearms of anybody in the curatorial department of the CFM. You make it sound like there's a lot of us. Right. I, yeah. Correction. There are three of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really even I don't spend that much, like less than 5% of my time working is actually hands-on with artifacts. Like there's, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of emails, it's meetings, it's, um, the day-to-day -day stuff you do in the office, uh, you know, at, of what looks like a lot of other offices around the country. Um, and then there's a percentage that's like research and writing. And that's, you know, that's kind of comparable. You know, it's not necessarily hands-on with the guns, but you're really kind of digging into firearms history. So there is a percentage that's that. Um, but yeah, when we have the people that come in the office and like, oh, I would love to have your job. You know, they're imagining like, all right, this week we clean all the guns in this case and we get to take them all out, take them apart, handle them, look at them. Like we don't do any of that. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the type of people that would be interested in our kind of jobs tend to be more museum focused people. So um, if you like designing exhibitions, if you like doing research, if you like managing budgets, cause you know, everybody likes that, <laughs> you know, but if you like managing and you like 
designing, you know, those are the really cool parts of our jobs. But, you know, so when I was the assistant curator, you know, I was a lot more hands-on and, and more of a collections manager. But when I became curator, you know, I'm responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the center. So, or the CFM. So like I have to write grants and get money and then I have to manage the money. And then, you know, we attend meetings, we have to do project proposals and we have to do a lot of paperwork to get us to the fun stuff which is like designing the exhibitions and doing all of that and then you know the the part of what we do as well as we're stewards of the collection so it's not necessarily that we're always hands-on but we are always kind of keeping a, a an eye on what's going on with the collection how can we interpret it for people but i would say uh most of the time that i'm doing collections research commenting on something i'm on our collection software on my computer and not actually in the vault unless i have to you know go take a picture or you know do some extra research to make sure that the record's like okay and so if you are someone that really wants to get hands-on with firearms curatorial positions probably aren't what you're looking for you're looking for something more like a collections manager um who they're supposed to be we don't have a collections manager at the center and no we're not hiring but um we have um well we have a collections manager but he's not a gun you know specific person and so but a collections manager traditionally in a museum is someone that does get hands-on with the firearms cleans them you know studies them records them as they come in as they go out on loans or loans get returned and so that person is a lot more hands-on but i think we should also point out the fact that curatorially speaking um as a curator i'm running the museum and that's not really what a curator is in other institutions danny do you want to take that yeah your position really functions more as like what you'd expect a director's job to be at a lot of museum institutions that you know I've had experience with. Um, whereas I think my job ends up being what more of what people think your job is. And then Dan is honestly, Dan probably does the most research of any of us because he's the one that handles all of us and he's our curatorial yeah. assistant. So, um, you know, his job maybe looks more like what everybody expects both of our jobs to be. Yeah. Um, you know, but what's fascinating about Dan's job, so Dan is not your traditional kind of museum employee because right. really, um, other than when we have him help us with stuff, I mean, he is 100% answering visitor inquiries, emails, phone calls, doing research on other people's guns, which a lot of museums don't offer that as a service or they'll do it, but it's like very, very rare when they actually do work on something like that. And so Dan's not your stereotypical person. He'd be something you would see more like probably at an auction house or something like that. Yeah. And that's really just because of the volume. Since we are a prominent firearms collection, we just get a huge volume of inquiries and it's something that we want to be able to do for people, but it is a really big time sink. Like, you know, just because I happen to, you know, and it's, it depends on the question too, you know, something about like a Winchester, I don't know, certain, you know, certain models of Winchester, like a 73, we might know fairly well and we can answer pretty quickly or, you know, where, where we might get a question on something really obscure that you have to really dig into and find. And even the stuff that you run across a lot might be a new take on um, a certain, you know, Winchester thing that we're pretty well versed in. And even that, it's like, well, I've looked that up before, definitely, but now I have to figure out and like remember where I wrote that down. And, you know, even those take time. So I think Dan's like last year, he did something like he does around 3,500 to 4,000 inquiries annually. Yeah. And so it's 
basically a, we have to pay a full-time position just to do that. Just to do that. Yeah. And, you know, so one of the things about like what we do too, that's a little bit different. So like if you are a gun guy or gal and you're really into, into like a specific type of firearm or you're really interested in the mechanics of the firearm, uh, that's not really like necessarily, unless you are at one of those museums that has like 15 curators, um, something that would be something you'd be able to do. Um, now, if you have a lot of time on your hands, like some curators, curators do, they do, you know, tend to focus in their research, um, but you should pick a museum that has a more narrow focus on what they collect. Um, so one of the things that draws me to my position is the fact that, you know, to be honest, you know, there are some guns that I know very technically like cold single actions, um, but at the same time, my area of interest is really a macro historical approach. So meaning like an overarching historical approach to firearms history. So I like to look at the entirety of firearms history and how things change. And then, you know, how that change affects technology, society, culture, industry, et cetera. And so like, if I wanted to study one thing, I couldn't do it here because you really kind of have to be a little bit of everything to everyone, but you can't be an expert in any one thing specifically because if to get to that level of knowledge, um, you know, that you need for, you know, your area of study, you really need to understand that that's, I just totally like spaced out in the middle of my statement. Um, but if you, if you, <laughs> if you want to be, you know, a, a, to the level of someone that is, an expert in Winchester, all Winchester rifles. I mean, that's going to be too time consuming for you to also then manage the collection. So, you know, you kind of have to decide, okay, so the institution may be firearms, but what kind of firearms and what am I interested in? So you may be better off going to a museum that's more thematically driven. So like a World War One museum, you know, and trying to be the curator of armaments there if you want to focus something a little bit more specifically than we do here. Yeah. And, you know, again, all that, this is all sort of prefaces, a lot of institutions, well, not, I shouldn't say a lot, but some institutions, you know, they might be a very specific institution and they'll have multiple curators for the same collection. Um, whereas we sort of have almost multiple collections with curator. solitary curators. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, you know, you might go to an art museum that's really focused on decorative arts or something like that. And they might have a curator just for like, late 19th century American furniture. Like that's their thing. Um, and that's those kinds of institutions I think are getting a little bit fewer and fewer, you know, as museums have sort of faced tough financial times. Um, but they're definitely, that's a model that's out there. Uh, whereas we, it's like, all right, you are the firearms curator. And I mean, you actually are the firearms curator for the center, center of the West. Say it again. <laughs> Soon to be replaced by me. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Danny's bringing out the big Friday. That wasn't even that big weekend. of a gun. No. Um, whereas, yeah, you're like the firearms curator for the CFM collection. Like, that's a, I think that's a pretty distinct separate model of ways to do curation. And I should, as an aside, when Ashley said she's spaced out, every once in a while, or more than every once in a while, when I'm talking to her, I can tell she's like spacing out on the weird historical tangent i'm going on and i'm fine with it it's like how we operate together also occasionally she does it to herself i just yeah i was <laughs> like i don't know i even stopped listening <laughs> so that's just a little tidbit of working with ashley oh yeah i'm a very bad listener <laughs> um 
so we've talked about uh, we've talked a bit about um, sort of what we do and that you know we're sort of general firearms historians we're not necessarily experts even though we might have our own kind specialties of and specialties um, and we've talked that our day-to-day -day doesn't really look like what people expect you know we're not just hands-on with the guns all the time we're not really you know we're not just sit here always doing research it does involve some of that but it's also a lot of the day-to-day -day of just keeping an office and keeping a public institution going. Yeah, keeping um, the displays going, emailing, you know, IT departments when things break all the time. <laughs> right, yeah, you know, and if you're like, in a museum and become a curator, like I know the push and everybody, visitors love interactives and admins love interactives and design firms love, love interactives. Interact. Don't do it. They're just, <laughs> uh, That is they terrible can be really, advice, Danny. <laughs> It is terrible advice, but man, they're so frustrating. You are having a day. I am having a day. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know, and the other thing is that you have to be kind of a big picture person. And right. I think sometimes I, when I encounter people like collectors that are passionate about, you know, a specific genre or time period, or, you know, sometimes they're more, that they're passionate about guns in general, but they still don't take away the big picture. Um, so when you're working in a museum, you are the public educator, you know, you are the one disseminating academic research, uh, collecting research, all of these like niche areas, you're disseminating that into a big idea to communicate to the public. So, um, you know, I, I remember uh, years ago, I went to the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg conference. And there was a, there was a panel on the difference between reenactors, uh, hist academic historians, and museum professionals. And let me just say <clears throat> a couple of things. One, I learned never call a living history interpreter a reenactor. And also, I was really saddened by all of the museum professionals who literally stood up to introduce themselves as failed academics. So then they like settled on the museum field. And I was like, I chose to go into the museum field. I love it, you know? So, uh, but while they were talking about that, it was an interesting conversation because, you know, you're reenactor, and this is, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I'm making gross generalizations. I know that there are reenactors who are museum professionals, and I know there are reenactors that don't get bogged down this, but your stereotype of a reenactor. So they're your most obvious front-facing type of person because they're in, uh, if it's military, they're in the uniform. Um, and so visitors, or not visitors, but like people are like really drawn to them because they look old timey. And so you're there, you're front face, but they're usually the least capable of communicating larger topics of conversation to people about different time periods. So what they were talking about was like, you know, a lot of times like, you know, a visitor, you're talking about specifically at Gettysburg, but a lot of times like a, like someone who's here, you know, on vacation at Gettysburg will see a reenactor and be like, oh my gosh, you know, this is so cool. Like, can you tell me more about it? And they'll want to talk about like their buttons you know, like the buttons on their uniform or, you know, their shoes um, that don't have specific feet, you know, feet. <laughs> um, but like they they want to talk about the minutiae of what they're wearing. Um, whereas, you know, then you get kind of the academic historian who's your least visible, but they're producing all of the, the content and the museum professionals kind of caught in the middle to like, you know, have people who are frontline people who are in outfits in some places and, and talking to people, um, but finding a way to take big concepts and these people who are really interested in minutia and make it something that the public actually wants to, you know, enjoy and, and learn from. You know, the other side of that was they also talked about the fact that sometimes like reenactors refuse to break character. So someone will be like, why did the Civil War happen to like a Southern general? <laughs> and you're going to get a much different answer if he stays in character. Right. People take that information and they're like, oh, I didn't right. know. 
you know, and then they, that like, they did like, they just they personally disseminate that information to people because they didn't realize that person was purposely not breaking character. And so it really is kind of interesting, like how we are almost like the middleman between reenactor collector types and the academic community. Right. Because the academics, you know, they might have a very broad picture or maybe they have a narrow picture of like, you know, using the civil war as, as an example, but they're not super accessible, like at all to the general public, you know, maybe a book here and there. Um, whereas yeah. reenactors are very accessible, but not necessarily, you know, they're concerned about a figure or a unit and a particular battle or a particular year or something like that. Um, and there were, yeah, museum people are somewhere in the middle trying to blend those, the, you know, going back to like the renovation project here, even that was like what we would consider a curatorial heavy workload. Like we were doing a lot more than normal curatorial work. And the most curatorial I ever felt was when we were doing like the layouts, everything else felt very bureaucratic yeah. almost. But so, that was like sort of a middle ground of taking these big historical topics and not getting too down in the weeds of saying, all right, this is a, you know, we wanted to illustrate like why a cult single action might be important to the American West without necessarily diving into how many variations of cult single action there are. And so we don't get too down in the weeds. And then, but also, bringing in that big picture history and not losing the fact that people just like to see like, you know, there's something to be said for the reenactor that wants to showcase like, what's it like to wear a wool jacket in a hundred degree heat at the battle of Gettysburg? Well, what's a cult single action that, you know, a cowboy might've carried in the West look like, like, we don't want to, we don't want to get all big picture or all detail, yeah. but we want some of both. And that I think mostly came out when we did like the final scripts and like the layout of the casework. But, um, yeah. And, you know, now we get to think about, you know, all that being said of like what we do and where we see ourselves. And you hinted at it when you said all these museum professionals that stood up and said they were failed academics. So how do you get here? How do you get, do you just <laughs> go be a failed academic? <laughs> like, is that how you get a job here? Yeah. If we haven't scared you away yet. <laughs> um, you yeah, know, but I think it's important because I think there'd be a lot of people that would want to go down a different like historical firearms route. Right. Um, I think before we end today, we should talk about some of those other options um, that aren't, you know, that might be more up people's alley if they want to study, you know, and yeah. be super hands on. But yeah, so how do you get that here? So for most of like muse most museums, you typically are getting a museum professional, someone with a background in history or maybe like interdisciplinary studies. Um, but you know, the gun world kind of had for a long time and still in some places, you know, they were kind of by the collector for the collector. So you do get more collectors in the gun museum world, mm -hmm. but that's kind of um, dying out. And I don't mean like, people uh, I mean I, I do <laughs> but I also don't but you know that's kind of Danny just made a face like Ashley not cool not cool <laughs> but you know it's it's that route of like oh I'm just super into history and I have a collection is really not um, I think you know I know some good people in the field that learned on the fly mm -hmm. but you know and, the, and they're fantastic curators now but at the same time you know it's really not what most places will hire anymore um, and so if yeah. you want to um, get into our field and be within the museum world, you know, you, you have to have, you usually have to have a, like a graduate degree. Right. Um, unless you want to be a low level employee. I mean, I have a master's degree as curator and that's like 
even almost unheard of in the normal museum field. Most curators have PhDs. Um, the gun world's kind of slow to catch up because we we there were just weren't people studying in the museum world guns. So then they supplemented with gun guys. Um, I feel confident that I could say gun guys, um, you know, and so we're kind of catching up to that. But yeah, I mean, you need to have a graduate degree. And then the one advice that I got that I thought was incredibly valuable was a lot of people who think they want to work in museums go for strictly a museum studies degree. And unless you want to work like in registration or like in museum services where like you're filing paperwork and, you know, handling the records and that kind of thing, it's not super helpful. Um, so what I was always told was, you know, if you're going to get your, you know, get your master's degree in history in a specific topic that you like and get a certification in museum studies. So Delaware, I got a master's degree in American history and I focused it on the study of firearms, but then I, at the same time, took coursework to get a certificate in museum studies. So I had the background of how to do the museum work but I didn't have, but I also had a specific area that I was knowledgeable in. If you just go for the museum degree, then you don't get an area you're knowledgeable in. You're just kind of like a blanket person. And that's not super helpful. Like I said, unless you're going into more of like a registration department where you're just going to file paperwork. Yeah. And, um, you know, the background to all this is like, I think it wasn't just gun museums that went like that collector to museum professional transition. I think the field as a whole, you know, in some ways is still at the tail end of like its professionalization era because, you know, until the eighties and nineties, there weren't even that many museum programs um, that were actually training museum professionals. So all it was either collectors or PhDs that didn't have a tenured position anymore um, that were being, you know, curators. So, yeah, and I think that's really good advice is do a subject area of history really well uh, and then understand what you need to do to translate that into museum, you know, into the museum world. And so for me, that was a, a history master's, but with emphasis in public history and military history. And my thesis, you know, had nothing to do with museums. It was a, it was a you know, military history topic. It was riveting. And it was, Ashley has read it. And um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. But you know, it was a military history topic. I edited it. Did I get credit? I don't remember actually. I don't think I did. <laughs> eh, it's fine. Um, last time I looked, it only had like 150 downloads ever. So kind of like our podcast. Kind. Hey, we're, we broke 2,000, I think. So congratulations, listeners. Yeah, um, congratulations to them. <laughs> that, you are welcome. I didn't mean that to sign to sound very arrogant but thinking back on it it really did yeah anywho you're just the like academic historian talking down to the people right I'm, I'm doing my best academic right now um but no so it was a military history thesis and I interned at a museum with an arms collection and that really built up experience and then I had some outside experience working in sort of an archival situation and that combined to make I think a better approach to um, understanding what might work in a museum field and for arms and firearms museums in particular than necessarily going and getting a generic museum studies degree. That's not to say that's the wrong choice, um, but you need to be able to demonstrate like some subject matter expertise, not just the general museum skills. Because we're really at this level, we're looking for both. 
Yeah. Well, and then the other piece of it, so it's not just edu education, but it's also the practical experience. And so you mentioned internships. Um, they're incredibly valuable. Um, you know, there was a movement back when I was in grad school for like where everyone wanted to work in the museum field. And then what was happening was you had a lot of um, people who were retiring that wanted to also get into the museum field. And so it almost like washed out the younger base um, in terms of experience. And so back when I was in grad school, I had someone that was getting their second master's degree with us because she could not get a job in the field because every entry level position back then required three years of experience. Well, how do you get that experience <laughs> if it's an entry level position? And so, um, I mean, so there's nothing really to fix that, you know, until it balances itself back out. Uh, but maybe, I don't know, don't always hire that retired dude that was in the business world forever in the museum field because he's only going to last for a little bit and your, your youth population, you know, is never going to have the opportunity. But, um, you know, the internships are a very valuable way to get that experience that looks good on a resume and you also learn something in the process, which is super good. And I wish like this is part, this is actually probably the difficult part of the conversation because I wish I could sit here and say like, you know, the sympathetic part of me wants to be like museum internships like deserve to always be paid and like do not take a unpaid internship. But the reality of the field is that that's not really possible, unfortunately. So, you know, Ashley mentioned that there's you know there's tends to be quite a bit of competition for museum position for museum positions from, you know, sort of outside volunteers, maybe somebody that's retired from another industry and has, you know, kind of a hobby or amateur interest in history. Um, you know, there is the classic example of retired academics or non-tenured academics, like seeking a job in the museum field out of, um, you know, university, out of the university system. Failed academics that can't take the right. rigors of the academic system because there's only so many tenures. And so then they go, oh, whatever, I'll just work in a museum. Right. And the willingness of museums to accept people that failed at that is concerning, but that's a different right. topic. Um, but then, you know, there's that competition. And then there's the competition of like people that walk into our office and like, man, I do your job for free. And you're like, shut up right now. <laughs> so the true. CEO jock by. Yeah. Like, Shut up. Uh, um, and, uh, so there's all those kind of factors that lead in. And it makes it a very, very competitive field. And so frankly, museums are kind of able to get away with having unpaid internships. And, you know, that can be a really difficult question for a lot of people, but sometimes that's the way in. That was the way in for me for a while, unfortunately. But uh, me as well. And, you know, so the other thing that I tell people is the fact that don't just cold apply. So Danny has the, the, opposite side of this. Um, and then I'll tell you how, let me tell you how I got in, you know, these opportunities. So, I mean, obviously it's always good to apply, 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 because, you know, something may come through, but the route that I took was um, the fact that I met people I wanted to work with. So, um, for example, like I had three years of the Smithsonian under my belt by the time I graduated with my master's and I had two years in Cody already under my belt um, of like, you know, different separate programs. And I, so I had all of this experience that's pretty impressive. And when I wasn't sure if I was going to get the job at Cody, I applied to some other museums that, 
you know, I was qualified for and I never heard back from anything. So I believe very strongly in, you know, obviously it doesn't hurt to do it because, you know, as Danny will say, sometimes it works. Um, but, you know, my kind of opinion has always been find the museum you want to work for, the person you want to work for, because they'll look out for you. So they may be like, okay, well, I got nothing right now. Um, but then you know, you stay in touch with them and when something comes up, they can tell you about it or when you apply for it, they recognize your name, which is super valuable. Cause I'm not gonna lie. I read lots of resumes and you just, you know, there's stuff that's like, it's the craziest stuff that sticks out to me in resumes that I look at. I don't, I, you know, for a lot of these, you don't have time to really dive too deep into any one resume. So you have to look for things that stick out and, you know, knowing someone's institution they came from, but knowing them is really incredibly valuable. So like they may be, they also may be like, listen, I don't have any paid internships right now, but like, do you want to come and volunteer for me like right now? And then they, they have your back when a job becomes available or they can go and vouch for you with their friend at another institution that is hiring. And so I think it's incredibly valuable to make personal connections. And, you know, even if you don't get, you do an interview, you don't get the job, stay in touch with the person that rejected you, ask them why they rejected you and stay in touch with them, you know, because it may, it may not be, you know, maybe something that's fixable or it may just be, you know, the luck of the draw at that point in time. So making personal connections is super helpful in an industry that's inundated with people wanting to work in it. Yeah. And, you know, Ashley said I would contradict it, so I'll do my best. Um, but like, I kind of succeeded in spite of my networking abilities, not because of them. Whereas <laughs> Ashley, I think succeeded, you know, you know, it's, as many people will tell you, networking is a key uh, path to success in the job market, regardless of the industry. And that's true for museums too. Um, but I, you know, I'd been in grad school and interning in a museum and that turned into part-time and that turned into full-time. And so that had been, but it was kind of a cold call, you know, to the local museum that got me, you know, a foot in the door and got the internship because I, you know, I said I, there wasn't actually an internship listed. I was just like, Hey, is there anything I can do? And they're like, yeah, you know, we can, we can do something. And then I was able to kind of own the job, prove myself that I was worthy of some, you know, paid positions. And then out there, I was, you know, starting to see that, all right, grad school's wrapping up and, you know, what's, what's on the horizon out here. And I saw this position, I, I think my boss actually saw it at the time and we talked about it and, um, but I saw the, the assistant curator position listed out here and I hadn't applied for anything else yet. And I was like, there's no way, like, that's a super cool institution from afar. <laughs> like this is, you know, that's like, I'm, there's no way I'm going to get this, but it's a chance to like, hone up all my application writing skills and like put together my resume because it needs an update and all that good stuff. And I sent it off and then, you know, Ashley called me and wanted to like schedule a phone call, I think, and then a meeting. And, you know, we so the NRA annual meeting. Right. And then she sick the American Society of Arms Collectors on me for a tour at the museum I was at and like trial by fire, by fire right there. Um, I was also like, you're really tall. Yeah, commented on my height right away because it's, it's not, not a protected, protected class. class. Um, but all that to say, like, and for all of the people listening that think like, wow, you just got really lucky. That's cool for you, I guess. Like, don't worry. I like suffered in my undergrad, out of undergrad. I, I applied to like a hundred and I don't know how many jobs and got turned down for all of them. Um, worked for the ATF. Yeah, I did, I did that. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
you know, then out of grad school, it just so happened that this was one of the first I applied for. And um, whatever was on my resume that caught Ashley's attention uh, and then got me the interview out here. So it was a little bit different story. But like I said, it was it was succeeding because I had still managed to build up a base of relevant experience and then succeeded in spite of network, you know, not having networked or talked to Ashley before applying. Um, but he did know who I was. But I did know who you were because of a really fascinating Nat Geo documentary about Smith and Wesson. Yep. Uh, no, Colt. I don't know. It was weird. It was uh, Colt versus Wesson. Oh, Colt versus Wesson. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And uh, the single action army that Colt through Horace definitely... Smith. Nobody cared about him. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's kind of like the the way to go about, you know, it's it's the combination of having a passion in a specific area, um, choosing that area, getting a graduate degree in that area, but also getting work um, and doing coursework on museum experience. And then, you know, getting the hands-on experience and that may or may not involve money. And that is the shitty part of our field. I know they're trying to change that, but it won't be, it won't be changed anytime soon. Um, and then, you know, so then if this is, not what you want after hearing us and i don't know since we're both really tired and you're having a rough day with your health insurance i feel like people will be like i don't want that job now so there's there are more like opportunities now out there for people who are interested in firearms and history um that weren't there before and i think what a lot of people when they see our job think that they want is something like what ian does yeah and you know ian's a great example you know there's cn arsenal there's uh historic Historical Firearms by Matt Moss, like the blog sphere yeah, has- Yeah, Matt's actually an academic. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> but it has opened up pathways for non-traditional academics and just non-traditional people that are interested in firearms to do firearms history in a successful way um, that wasn't necessarily there before. And frankly, you know, sometimes I've told people like, straight up, like go be successful in a different industry and like do your history interest on the side. Like that's a totally valid way. And, you know, that's how a lot of these collectors that have written firearms history books have done it. And, you know, we've, we've been known to downplay a few of those books, but some of them do a really great job. So if you have the skills, you can do a really good job that way. Um, and we help out those kinds of researchers all the time. Like, you know, that's one of our, a, a big responsibility here at the museum or a big job duty here is, helping researchers like, like Ian, like Matt, like writers, you know, whoever it might be to understand our collection, to get access to our collection, um, all that kind of stuff. So there are, there are quite a few paths that are open. Um, not saying that they're easy, but, um, there are definitely some alternatives that get you really hands-on with the historical side and the research side. Well, and then there's also too, like you made a really good point about the side, you know, if it's your passion, do it on the side because I mean, you and I both get burnout. Yeah. And, and think, we love I, our, like, I love my job, but you know, the last thing I want to do when I go on a vacation is go to a museum, you know? And, and, you know, I really like firearms. And I love firearms history, but like, there's nothing worse sometimes than when you go over like it's Saturday night and you're at a party and then someone corners you for three hours to talk about their gun because they think you want to keep talking about, you know, <laughs> their firearm for that long. And so, you know, to me, like 
I love my job and I wouldn't trade it. And I am fascinated by firearms, but you know, it's not like what I find fascinating when I, you know, am got free time in history is medical history, you know, like early pharmacies. And, you know, I also am interested in dark tourism, why people go to sites in morning. So like my, like my like weird nerdy side hustles aren't necessarily firearms. Sometimes their firearms are involved, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely something to be said for, you know, doing a job you love, but then also not trying to turn your love into a job because to be honest, like, and I'm not saying this for us, but like it can ruin it for you. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you, if you're going to go into the museum field and I think really any history field, like if you're considering that as an option, like by all means, like pursue your passion, but realize those people that are like get up every day and they're like, I don't work a day in my life because I love what I do. There are people out there that that's true for. It might not be true for you. And just because you love history doesn't mean it's going to be true because let's face it, a lot of the places that run historic sites and museums and whatever tend to be bureaucratic institutions. Museums as a whole, you know, there's some that are, some that aren't, but museums as a whole, as a field tends to be very bureaucratic. And like, you know, if you're talking about a National Park Service site or a state site, like you're talking about state and federal government that are probably going to be bureaucratic. And that can be, you know, a frustrating place to be for its own. Sometimes it can be a very comforting place to be because the jobs might be, you know, very steady. Um, but other times it can be a very, you know, if, if there's national news about government budget cuts or or if you're just trying to get a project done and you have to run through a bunch of red tape, like those can be things that really take make you take a step back from your love of history and think, wow, this is a really frustrating experience. So that's something to consider. And again, it, it goes back to the idea that most of the places that you're going to be doing these kinds of jobs are going to be those types of institutions. Yeah. So I think we talked for a really long time again. We did. We're like suddenly our standards 40 minutes instead of 20 minutes. Like what's up Just with that? Listen to it faster. Yeah. Put us on like time and a half speed for sure. <laughs> well, I hope that this was informative. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it wasn't necessarily as Can fun as some cool? of our others, but I think it was good. Danny just continues talking. He's like, oh, I'm going to talk more after like we've decided that this has been a long podcast. I have thoughts. And Danny always, have you ever noticed that with Danny? Like, I'll be like, I'll be trying to wrap it up because I'm watching the dive and then I'll be like, but I really want to say one more yes, thing. Yes, that always <laughs> happens. Whenever okay. I'm editing the end, I'm like, Danny. <laughs> Shut for up, For the Danny. record, for the record, like this episode was the opposite of the original Carbine Williams episode because I there was some long stretches of Ashley talking. I'm like, I'm not sure how I'm going to get in here. <laughs> That's not true. Maybe it is. I don't know. I get bored when I'm not talking. Camila's like, stop, turn it off. Okay, we're going to go now. All right, just pick a spot way back in the beginning and edit us out. Cut us out there. <laughs> okay. Say bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> bye, y'all. See, I did it again after Ashley said bye. <laughs> <laughs>